becoming a house of prayer. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard that phrase, my house shall be a house of prayer? Has anybody heard of that phrase before? Yeah? Okay. So familiar to some of us. We're going to go to the passage, uh, one of the passages there in the New Testament where we can find Jesus saying this. So let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time studying together. Um... Aside from a really awesome wedding this week, uh, there were some other interesting things that took place this week. I don't know how many of you actually got to go outside on, uh, on Monday. Um, August 21 happened to be our anniversary, and we actually we were driving up towards Leadville, and it was about 11 o'clock, and we started noticing that, okay, it was about time. People were pulling over, and so we pulled out. You can see that there are some other people out there, and um, we busted out some home... <laughs> Don't try this at home. Homemade uh, solar glasses. Anyways, um, we didn't actually make them. The person who was uh, at the hotel, like there was another guest who happened to be making his own, and he noticed that we had three kids, and he had three extra pairs of glasses, and he said, hey, you got some for your kids? Anyway, so we worked it out. Um, But, so how many of you guys got to check it out? Anybody got to check it out? Yeah, that was pretty incredible. Did anybody go to the areas where there was a, what is it, the band of totality, where there was 100% coverage? Yeah? Okay, so... So we were here, and supposedly it was 92% magnitude or or coverage or whatever, Um, and it still felt like daylight, although it did kind of get a little bit dusky, so to speak. Um, But I was told that where, like, for for example, I had some friends up in Casper, Wyoming. They they noticed, like, almost a 20-degree drop in weather. It looked like it was it was actually dark, like you could see lights come up in the town and stuff. And anyways, it was it was pretty incredible. So we apparently we weren't the only ones watching. People all over the United States were watching, trying to find the band of totality and stuff. In fact, even the president and his family, um, they they took some time to check out the solar eclipse. And it just kind of made me think, you know, people were making plans, people were making trips, people were making special preparations to actually watch the sun. Uh, which wouldn't be a normal thing, right? Um, But it was very interesting to me that um, so many people were making all these preparations and plans. And the the question crossed my mind, how many people are making preparations and plans to watch the true son, the son of God, to watch when he is coming, to watch the signs that he has given us in Scripture. And in Luke 19, if you turn in your Bibles with me, there's a time where Jesus, he's kind of, he's surrounded by a people. I mean, he himself is there with the people, and they don't quite recognize. They don't quite recognize what time it is. They don't quite recognize the privilege that they have in front of them. So we are here in Luke 19. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. All right? We're going to kind of skim on down to verse 41. Uh, A little bit of the context. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem for the very last time. And yeah, that's right. I said he's riding. He's not driving in a car. He's actually riding on a donkey. Okay. And this is very significant because this was a fulfillment of prophecy, a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, an Old Testament prophecy that says that your king is riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a, of a donkey. And so Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy right before their eyes. And then he gets to the peak of the mountain while people are praising him and people are saying, Hosanna, this is our king and things like that. He realizes that even though they're saying that with their lips, they don't really comprehend it with their hearts. And in verse 41, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says this. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. It says, Now, as he drew near, speaking of Jesus, He saw the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, 
And what does your Bible say that Jesus was doing there as he saw the city? He wept. He was crying. He was sobbing. In this moment of relative glory, in this moment of joy where everybody is praising him, he's at the peak of this hill and he's crying over the city. In verse 42, it says this, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you. And your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your, what does the next word in your Bible say? Visitation, yeah? I mean, visitation, that, that, that can usually, if you're looking forward to the guest, that, that's a really good thing, right? But if you're not prepared, visitation can be, like when that door knock comes, and you're, oh man, the house is, you know? That can be like a moment of judgment for you. <laughs> um, but here, here's, here's what Jesus is saying. You, do, you have no idea. Yes, I am the king, and this king is not to take a throne, but to go onto a cross. This king is visiting and he's weeping over his people's ignorance. He's weeping over his people's ignorance. I wonder how many times Jesus weeps over our own ignorance or our lack of preparedness. But what's interesting to me is that this portrait of Jesus weeping over people's unawareness of prophecy's fulfillment is juxtaposed and placed right next to another portrait, which we are familiar with, In verse 45, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of what? It's a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Two very stark, very contrasting pictures. Jesus weeping and then Jesus um, charging people out, like driving people out. These are two emotions of Jesus that were not really, they're, they're not very common in, in the biography of Jesus, the Gospels of Christ. You don't really see Jesus like uh, weeping and crying a lot. You don't really see Jesus kind of filled with this indignation very much. And it's, it's very interesting that these two, where he is heartsick over our unawareness of, of prophecy's fulfillment, and then a second picture where he's wanting to restore this house of prayer. And I wonder if, if there's a connection. It's interesting because Luke includes this picture of Jesus crying over uh, the, the temple, crying over people's unawareness, whereas the other Gospels, they, they don't even include that at all. And so Luke is, is putting this, he's inserting this picture very intentionally. He wants us to understand something. And I wonder if he's trying to connect some dots for us. Could it be that the people's unawareness of their opportunity, could it be that their unawareness of prophecy's fulfillment has any connection to the fact that their house had not been a house of prayer? In other words, could it be that their prayerlessness led to their ignorance? Or their ignorance was, was in some part playing into their prayerlessness. And today, as we are considering this concept, and throughout the rest of this month, as we consider this concept of being or becoming a house of prayer, I want us to understand it in that context that somehow there is this level of urgency about becoming a house of prayer. Becoming not just a place of prayer, but a people of prayer. 
because I really believe that there, without it, without it, we would be without awareness of what God is doing in our midst. Does that make sense to us today? Yeah? And so today, as we're going to dive into this understanding what this phrase is, what God really wants for us when he says, my house shall be a house of prayer, we're going to be exploring that specifically, but I want us to see specifically how it relates to our being prepared for what God is doing in our midst, okay? So let's take a look. We're back in Luke chapter 19. Um, Let's just take a look at those two verses, 45 and 46, very key verses. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. These are very startling actions of Jesus. And his words do something to explain what it is that he's so zealous about. His words are there in verse 46, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. I want us to think on this just for a little bit here. My house... When Jesus is saying my house, obviously he he prefaces it with those three words, it is written. But it's interesting because Jesus has just been proclaimed king, right? He has just ridden on a donkey and people are saying, blessed, you know, Hosanna in in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And here he shows up in the temple, and he's quoting these, these Old Testament passages, but it could be kind of taken as though he is declaring this himself. This is my house. This is my house, right? And where is Jesus? According to verse 45, where is Jesus? He's in the temple, right? So when we're talking about my house, in the immediate context, what, what, what Jesus is saying is, hey, this is God's house. This is not just a very nice structure and not very nice edifice. This is God's house. This is his dwelling. The temple, the place where he could dwell with them. You know, the temple has its origins with the wilderness tabernacle in Exodus 25, verse 8. God actually gave Moses very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, right? And in Exodus 25, verse 8, he says, Let them build for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This was to be God's dwelling. This was to be God's place. The place where his name and his character would be most clearly revealed. In fact, the only other time where... um, where there's this similar phrase, house of prayer. There's another phrase in First Chronicles 7, I think it's in verse 12, where it says, this is my house of sacrifice. A house of sacrifice. In other words, this is the place where, where uh, sacrifices would be done in order to point people to God's gift of salvation. And so God was using his house, this is his house, his place to dwell where, where salvation would be revealed. But that phrase, my house shall be a house of prayer. You know, when we say that this is a house of prayer, we're talking about what is that characteristic that really defines God's house. And when he says, my house shall be a house of prayer, he's identifying that that distinct characteristic being prayer. What is my house all about? My house should be all about prayer. Notice he doesn't say it's a house of singing. He doesn't say it's a house of preaching, although those things happen in God's house, right? Uh, David, like the psalmist David, he, he wrote songs. He set up uh, song teams and the Levites, and he instructed them how to make this a house of praise, a house of singing, and, and obviously it was a house of sacrifice as well. But, but here, Jesus is saying, my house shall be a house of prayer. The defining characteristic of God's house, as well as the defining purpose of God's house, ought to be 
prayer. So a simple question would be then, what then is prayer? Right? What is prayer? If you were to define prayer, how would you define prayer to your five-year-old? How would you, how would you describe prayer to someone who, who has never really engaged in that experience before? Someone help me out. Yeah. Talking to God. Talking to God. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. How else? How else would you describe what prayer is? Does that do it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So this uh, expression of request that involves, let me see if I'm hearing you right, that involves a surrender to whatever God's design, whatever God's will is, and, um, and as subsequently we experience God's peace as a result of that. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Yeah, Dennis. Mm, yeah, prayer and worship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and no wonder, I mean, just kind of uh, thinking about Paul's text in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we ought to pray without ceasing. And really, our lives ought to be uh, a worship towards God without ceasing. So worship isn't relegated to an hour on a particular day or uh, on a stage or whatever, but it's the way we live. It's how we live and move. Very good. Very good. Yeah, so prayer, uh, literally speaking, the word, the Greek word that's used here, house of prayer, it's prosyuchilmai. Um, pros, uh, it's kind of uh, identifying directional, so it's a, it's a directional uh, verb. But yuhomai, uh, it refers to our wishes and our desires, okay? And so, literally speaking, the word itself is talking about addressing God or directing our desires toward God. I mean, it's one thing to have desires, but it's another thing to actually direct our desires toward God, um, and I think more broadly, more than just petitioning God, it's this idea of communication. It's this idea of adoration and worshiping God. It's this idea of surrendering to God. So there's this two-way dynamic too. And I love this quote. Um, it's from one of my favorite books, Steps to Christ by Ellen White. It says this, Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. I love that. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Do you notice the two-way dynamic there? It's not like we're giving God new information. Hey, did you know that I need this? <laughs> no, that's not, yeah, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to him. That's relationship. That's relationship. And so when Jesus is saying, my house shall be a house of this, my house shall be a house of worship, of communion, of surrender, of, of directing my desires toward God, of opening our hearts to God as to a friend, then what we're talking about is that God's house as a place, and I would say, um, oh man, maybe we should expand this. God's house is, is, not, is not just a place. We should, we should uh, clarify this before we move on. You know, when, when you have the immediate context there, obviously Jesus is standing in the temple and he is surrounded by this structure that is known as God's house. It's, it's God's temple. But in the broader context of scripture, I think we can see that God's house is more than just a place. It's, it's a people. Uh, a couple of texts, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17. Know you not that you are the temple of God 
And then 1 Corinthians 6, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But actually, turn with me really quickly. You have your Bible or your Bible app. Go to Ephesians. So hold a, hold a finger here in Luke, and then go to the book of Ephesians. It's a little bit to the right. You'll pass things like John and Acts and Romans. And then you'll pass some Ians like Corinthians and Galatians. But then there's this book called Ephesians. It's a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And notice how, uh, man, this is so, so clear how Paul just kind of expands this idea. It's not just about this place that God is wanting to dwell in. Ephesians chapter 3. If you found it, say, I found it. All right. Way to go. Way to go. All right. Ephesians chapter 3. And I'll start in verse 19. He's been, I'm sorry, not 3. It's 2. I'm looking at, anyways, it's 2. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. It's right above the number three in my Bible. Anyways, okay. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He's just been talking about how Jesus saves by grace. And because of his saving grace, he has torn these partition walls and these barriers down between Jews and Gentiles. And then in verse 19, he says this. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, what does your Bible say there? Yeah, okay. Members of the household of God. Oh, interesting. Okay, family dynamics, house, things like that. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So he's going into metaphor language here. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. There are things that are being built upon the apostles and the prophets, but what is it that's being built? Verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy what? A holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Do you notice the jump that he just made? He's saying, okay guys, hey, you're not citizens of, uh, or you're not strangers, you're not foreigners, you're actually part of this family, you're part of this household. And then he gets into this metaphor of brick and mortar and cornerstones and things like that. And he says, Jesus is that cornerstone. He's the foundation. And you're being built. You are that temple. You're the dwelling place of God. Do you follow that? Yeah? So God's people is, is really, in the broader scheme of scripture, God's house really is not just a place. It's his people. It's his people. So now, let's put these things together. My house shall be a house of prayer. My place, yes, where, where, uh, you know, where God's people meet, where, where we, we worship, that should be filled with and function expressly for prayer. But even more than that, God's people. God's people ought to be characterized. Their defining characteristic ought to be heartfelt, or as, as a friend of mine coined, heartful communication with God. I tell you something. God wants to reside in your heart and mind. God wants to dwell among you and me and us. And really, more than a place of prayer, Jesus longs for a people of prayer. More than having a place where prayer is want to be made, he, he longs for a people whose constant default stance and posture before him is one of heartful communication with God. 
Catch this. What God calls his dwelling place is to be characterized by heartful communication with him in prayer. And I wonder if the reverse implication is true. No, I don't wonder. I submit that the reverse implication is true. That wherever sincere prayer happens, that's where God is. Whenever your heart engages in sincere, heartful communication with God, that's where he is. So I want us to to really land on this. That sincere prayer secures God's presence. You want to know how to become a house of prayer? Uh, What's involved in becoming a house of prayer? When we actually pray, we secure God's presence. Not that that he hasn't been present, but that through prayer, we're becoming more aware of his presence. It's something that allows us to truly let him dwell among us. And I tell you, this is most clearly seen in the life of Jesus. Most clearly seen. I mean, you can think about Bible heroes throughout, you know, scripture history and stuff. Like Moses, for example, he was a man of prayer. Oh, man, he was like 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, two times over, okay? And the second time he comes down and his face is glowing with glory from God. Why? Because through prayer, he had secured God's presence. But I tell you, Jesus' life, Jesus' life exemplifies this more than any other Wherever he went, wherever he went, God's presence, I mean, he, he, he was God in the flesh. And uh, we're, I mean, you see whole towns where he's passing through and in his wake, no one, no sick soul is left, right? Um, in Acts 10 verse 38, it says that he went about doing good. God had anointed him and to do good and, and he had healed those because God was with him. And when you look at Jesus' life, Jesus' life was a life of prayer. It was a life of prayer. It wasn't just kind of this automatic default thing. It was because God pursued, or Jesus pursued God's presence. And my question this morning, I I guess I have several questions, but a question at this point would be this. Do we avail ourselves of that kind of privilege? Do we avail ourselves of this privilege of heartfelt communication with God that secures his presence? Or maybe I'll just get a little bit more specific. Have we availed ourselves of that privilege today? Today. Before I go on in this message, I just want to give us an opportunity where we can kind of break a little bit. and Just take some time for silent prayer again. I know we did this before, but to do this again um, with this sincere focus. God, I want to be present with you. And I want you to be present with me. So I'll just give you a little bit of time. Just for silent prayer, if you feel comfortable closing your eyes, folding your hands, kneeling, whatever you'd like. But just to, to take this for real, God, cause me to secure your presence today. So go ahead, take a, take a minute or two. God, it's a blessing to just be still and know that you are God. And sometimes um, it's hard for our hearts to discipline ourselves to even be quiet long enough to be aware of your presence. But um, we want you to come in. Um, We want you to dwell here, that this would be your temple, my heart. Our hearts would be your home. Maybe you know this chorus. 
Uh, you can sing along with me. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay. To my heart, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to keep going here um, just to dig a little bit more as to what it is that God is encouraging and inviting us into. Again, when you look there at verse 46, this is back in Luke 19 now. Luke 19, verse 46. Those three words have already kind of cued us to it, where Jesus says, It is written. And then obviously you see quotation marks. And maybe your, your verse has some italics where it says, my house is a house of prayer. That's in italics. Or maybe you have a footnote that tells you that Jesus is actually quoting. Like he's not making this stuff up. This is stuff that he has said before. Okay? And he has said this before to and through the prophet Isaiah. In that first phrase, my house shall be a house of prayer. And then there's another quotation which we'll get to in just a moment. But here, I want us to look at this because there's more in the original context of this Isaiah passage that I want us to see. Um, If you have your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 56. I think I have some of it here. Okay, so in Isaiah 56, verse 7 is the direct quotation where Jesus is taking this. And it says, Even them I will bring to my, my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Okay? Uh, We don't know quite yet who them is unless you look at the context. And so just hang on to that in a shelf in your mind. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all nations. Okay? And that's the them. That's the them in this passage. If you look, I mean, Isaiah 56 gets a little bit more specific in verse 6. Um, it says this, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling my Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. So he's talking about people who are on the edges and the outskirts, but they're wanting to enter into covenant relationship with God. All these other nations who are not, quote unquote, the chosen people, God is saying, hey, my house should be a house of heartfelt communication for them too. And that's, that's a beautiful thing that Isaiah is wanting us to see here, that when we treat God as more than um, something to be marketed, okay, which is what was taking place when Jesus entered into the temple that day. People were buying and selling sacrifices and stuff, probably uh, inflating prices and things like that, where the focus had become on, okay, can I get a bargain out of this, or am I, am I going to be broke because I'm trying to sacrifice to God? You know, like the focus had been taken away from God and communicating with God to, to what they can get out of the deal, the, the merchandising out of it. But when we treat God as more than that, When we treat God as more than a product to use or enjoy. Instead, when we enjoy heartfelt communion with Him, when we approach His presence with that kind of mindset, that that securing of God's presence doesn't just benefit us. It actually benefits other people. That's what Isaiah is kind of opening up to our minds. Hey, as a result of my house being a house of prayer, sons of the foreigner, the strangers, the outcasts, they're going to be blessed by God's presence too. When we pray 
A, God abides and dwells in our hearts, but two, others around us are able to know God also. That prayerful communion opens up the doors for others to enter into a knowledge and relationship with God. Does that make sense to us? In other words, when we don't have that, when we don't have that, it actually keeps others from a knowledge of God's glory. And I think that's what Jesus is, is getting at. This is a privilege. When we have this privilege of, of, of communing with God in heartfelt sorts of ways, um, we have this dynamic We have this dynamic of securing God's presence for ourselves, but also enabling others to enjoy God's presence. But that's not the dynamic that Jesus found in the day that he went into the temple. That's why he's driving people out. That's why he's kind of taking out the barriers for people to really enjoy communion with God. And as a result, what had happened, Jesus says it back in Luke 19, What had they made that house? In verse 46, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it what? A den of thieves. Whoa, okay, okay. Again, Jesus is not just kind of coming up with this stuff. He's not just pulling it out of his back pocket. He's quoting Old Testament scripture from the ancient prophet. Do you you guys have a footnote there uh, where this verse is coming from? Um, It's actually from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And I put it up here, verse 11. Um, It says this, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. So apparently back in Jeremiah's day, so the people in Jesus' day, they weren't the first to do this. Uh, They weren't the first to, to turn God's house of prayer into something other than that. It had become a den of thieves. And notice, uh, actually, if you have your Bible, this, this is very, very interesting, actually. Oh, no, wait. I think I put it up here. Okay. Sometimes Jeremiah can be hard to find. All right. <laughs> so Jeremiah 7, um, verses 9 through 10. So this is the stuff right before this whole den of thieves quotation. Notice what it is that they had done that had made this place a den of thieves. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, which is a false god, which is an idol, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Do you hear what they're doing? In other words, they're living in blatant sin, and then they're showing up for worship and saying, God's grace has allowed me to do this. They're living a double life. They're living in such a way that their walk does not match their talk, to put it lightly, right? Their lives were a contradiction. They had been practicing a worship of God while living lives that were in worship of something else. That gathering of worship then was nothing more than a den of thieves in Jeremiah's day. That gathering of worship of people who stole, they stole, uh, let's see here, again, what is it? They had become a den of thieves. Well, then what, what had they been stealing? They had been stealing two things. Two ways, I should say. This temple thievery. One, they stole from God the glory due to his name. And two, they stole from others the opportunity to know the God of glory. And what was true in Jeremiah's day was even more true in Jesus' day. 
as he was seeing this dynamic of, hey, whoa, 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 you have turned my house of prayer into a den of thieves. Jesus here in Luke 19, if you're flipping back there, Jesus is now connecting the dots. He's saying that is what we turn into when we neglect to be a house of prayer. Listen to that. That is what we become. That, that, all that. Like, I I would never want to put myself in that situation and say, yeah, that's me. But that's what we become when we neglect to become a house of prayer. If you imagine a spectrum, becoming a house of prayer, becoming a den of thieves, the further, we be, uh, the further away we move from being a house of prayer, the more we become a den of thieves, where we're committing temple thievery, robbing God of his glory and robbing others of the opportunity to know the God of glory. Ah, this is a harsh word. <laughs> um, this, is, this is tough for me to swallow because, you know, oftentimes I think of being a house of prayer or a person of prayer or a people of prayer is a privilege. And it's, uh, sometimes we, we consider a luxury that we can take for granted. But could it be that there's more to it? Like, if I'm not moving upstream, I'm definitely moving downstream. If I'm not being a house of prayer personally, then am I robbing God? Am I robbing God? The less we engage in heartfelt communion with God in prayer, the more apt we are to rob God of the glory he deserves and to rob others of the chance of knowing God himself. And my conviction as a, as a, as a leader of this, you know, a startup church, my conviction is that God desires to establish a DNA in this church family that can be characterized as being a house of prayer. Like, I, I don't just want to be a church that prays every now and then. I, want, I don't want to just be a church with prayer. I want to be a church of prayer. For me personally, my, my, as, as a man of God, as a husband to my wife, as a father to my kids, I want to be a man of prayer. Not just a man who prays occasionally, but a man of heartfelt communication with God to secure God's presence, but not only that, to lead others to God's presence as well. And this is my desire, not just for me personally, not just for my household, but for our church family. Not just this local congregation, but God's church globally. You know, we ought to be a house of prayer. Because if we're not, we're making ourselves a den of thieves. So let's flip this around. Let's flip this around. Okay, so the less we are a house of prayer, the more we are a, a den of thieves. Then could it be this? that the more we are a house of prayer, the less we are a den of thieves, right? (laughs) The more we engage in heartfelt communion with God, personally, meaningfully, opening up our hearts to God as to a friend, the more we actually give God glory. The more we actually allow others to see God's glory. Do you follow that? Yeah? So, So sincere prayer does not just secure God's presence for me. Sincere prayer actually leads others to God's presence. Sincere prayer secures God's presence for me personally, but sincere prayer also leads others to God's presence. The more we become a house of prayer, a heart of prayer, a home of prayer, a dwelling of God's presence, the more we can lead others to God's presence too. Wow, that's what I want, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, if if I were to ask this question, I think, I mean, I think we would all agree. Um, Do you long to be a house of prayer? Is that your desire? Or maybe I should flip that. 
do you not want to be a den of thieves? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we would all agree. Yeah, I, I don't want to be caught on this side of the spectrum where I'm actually robbing God of his glory and I'm stealing from others the opportunity to know God. I think we would all say, no, that's not the option that I want. I want option A instead. And that is, do we want to be a house of prayer? I would say, yes. Yes, indeed. And so the question then is, how? (laughs) How do we do it? Or maybe a better question is, what keeps us from being a house of prayer? What are the barriers? What gets in the way? Maybe for the people uh, of Jesus' time, it was unawareness of their privilege unawareness of prophecy's fulfillment, as we kind of mentioned that earlier. What is it that keeps you and me from being a house of prayer? I mean, we don't have to answer out loud, but maybe you resonate with some of these things. Indifference? I'm not really that into prayer, you know? I just don't really know how to talk to God. Maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's that lack of know-how, lack of familiarity. Maybe it's um, lack of time, busyness. Maybe it's distractions of the world. Maybe it's just I'm too caught up in myself and the agendas and ambitions of my own ego. Maybe it's ignorance. Maybe it's a sense of inadequacy, like, oh, man, prayer, that's, that's for the spiritual giants. That's for spiritual leaders. That's for those guys, not for me. Maybe it's a lack of knowledge about God that he actually wants to hear from you. You're not quite sure of opening up your heart to God because you're not quite sure who God is. Or maybe it's just a, yeah, like we said, a misunderstanding of God, and you need to see God with new eyes, so to speak. You know, a lot of times, I mean, well, we could even say that sin keeps us from heartfelt communication with God. Things that we're hanging on to, cherished sin. And when I think about these things that get in the way of our heartfelt communication with God, I would say that these are the things that Jesus wants to drive out. Right? In that story, in Luke 19, Jesus, drive, Jesus is driving out those very people and those very dynamics, those very exchanges that got in the way of people truly communing with God. And so what is it in our lives? What are the barriers that keep us from, from meaningful and genuine communication with Jesus? Those are the things that need to be cleaned out. And I'll tell you, when I think about the temple cleansing story in Scripture, I often think about Jesus cleansing out sin, you know? Cleansing out the, my, my, my blatant sin against God. But maybe there's more. Maybe it's not just the blatant sin that we cherish, but it's the, the simple distractions that keep us, the barriers themselves that keep us from truly communing with God. Those are the things that he wants to drive out too. So whatever it is, that's what needs to be taken out. And if we desire to become a house of prayer, as a church, as a household, as your individual heart, that we must be willing, we must be willing to allow Jesus to cleanse the heart temple. And maybe some of you are thinking about this, and you're like, whoa, well, if I, if I do this, then what? You know, where will those things go? I'll have to change some things and things like that. But I want to tell you that there, there would be, an, you'll experience amazing things. <laughs> when we truly let Jesus cleanse out the heart temple, one, I mean, like we saw, we were connecting the dots earlier, we'll be more aware of the fulfillment of prophecy around us. Two, we'll be able to give God glory and enable others to see God's glory. And then the third is, is actually found in Matthew 21. Let me, let me show that to you here. Go Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 is, um, is the parallel passage to Luke 19. 
Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so just a couple books to the left from Luke. Matthew 21. Notice this in verse uh, 14 and 15 specifically. But um, I guess you can kind of start from verse 12. If you're there in Matthew 21, go ahead and say amen. Amen. All right. So Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables, the money changers, the seats of those who sold doves. Okay. Very familiar. And then in verse 13, there's that quotation. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. But notice the immediate impact after Jesus clears out these barriers. Notice what happens. Verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Ah, do you hear the old, all these kinds of things? We won't get into the negative, but I want to hear, what I want us to see is the positive here. That immediately after cleansing out, the very first things that happen are healing and praises. Healing and praises, especially from the mouth, mouths of children. And so when we are, are willing to let Jesus clear out the barriers, the things that, that uh, get in the way of true communion with God, I tell you, one, we will be able to give God glory. We won't be robbing him of glory. And two, we'll experience healing. There will be healing in our heart temple. And if there are kids in the midst... <laughs> They'll, they'll see reason to praise the Lord. That, 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 wow, that's beautiful to me. Um, healing can happen. Heartfelt praise can happen. And so how do we do this? How do we do this? When, when Jesus invites us to be a house of prayer, these are the two simple invitations to secure God's presence and to lead others to God's presence. As a practical takeaway, friends, I would just make two simple appeals. If it is your desire to become a house of prayer, one, plan to pray. Make, make time to pray. And, and you know what? We'll actually, um, over the next few weeks here in September, we'll actually be talking about best practices. How do we actually pray? You know? So if I carve out time to pray, what do I say? And what do I do? And things like that. So we'll, we'll try to get really, really practical. Um, but I would just say this, plan to pray. Um, Debbie and I were just talking about some things that we haven't done. And I, I said to myself, man, I just need to put it in my calendar. Because the things that get calendared get done, right? So maybe if you're wanting to pray but just haven't been praying, plan for it. What would happen if you actually planned for it? If you are the type to use a calendar um, or an alarm clock or whatever, I've started to set phone alarms that just tell me to pray because I need that reminder. So plan to pray. That would be uh, appeal number one. And then number two, consider cause and effect. Consider cause and effect. In other words, connect the dots. Are there things that are actually getting in the way of me having heartfelt time with God, heartfelt communion with God? And if you're able to connect the dots and see the cause and effect, then ask God to cleanse the heart temple from that. Does that make sense today? Yeah? Plan to pray, think cause and effect, and allow God to cleanse the heart temple. Today what we're going to do is we're just going to sing a simple song of response, and then we're going to ask God to cleanse our heart temple but the song today that, um, that we want us to sing is, uh, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. So if it's your desire for God to really cleanse the heart temple and to create in you and in us a house of prayer, go ahead and stand with us as we sing this song together.
Father in heaven, um, thank you for being worth it. That you are more precious than silver or gold or any other thing that uh, currently resides in our heart temple. Lord, we give you permission today to cleanse the barriers, to remove whatever might get in the way of true, open, heartfelt communication with you. I pray, God, for the experience of of becoming a house of prayer personally. I pray for the experience of becoming a house of prayer corporately, communally. And God, we, we thank you that you have invited us into this experience. And we also just confess to you our, our weakness and our tendencies to not enter into that relationship with you. And so, Father, please fulfill the promise of Jeremiah 29, verse 12, that says, Then you will call upon me. And go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. May that be our experience this week. May we be able to testify when we come back together next week that truly you have been bringing us into heartfelt communication with you. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, amen and amen. Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a restful Sabbath, and um, may you enjoy communion with God.